Some of you may remember when we had Bible tabs. Y'all remember those? You don't need them anymore, right? Because it's always on the screen. We used to play Bible baseball. Y'all remember that? And the people with the tabs cheated. They always won. <laughs> brother, brother Pearl tried to take us back a while ago, so I guess I'm on that same theme, brother. <laughs> Cecil B. DeMille, are you kidding me? <clears throat> Amen. Daniel chapter 5, 5 and 6. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and rode over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. The king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against another. Sounds pretty scary to me. It's not Halloween's over. What am I preaching this for, right? Shake a couple of people's hands. We're back to doing that now. <clears throat> if you're in a hugging mood, you can hug somebody. <clears throat> All right, just in case you're wondering, my time doesn't start till right now. <laughs> Strange message that we're going to bring to your attention today. I am. Uh, relatively convinced that it is God's will uh, for this particular message. And so may the Lord help us, because if he doesn't, we're all in trouble. The word logos, you'll find, of course, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, which is logos, and the word logos was with God, and the word logos was God. The word logos means thought, plan, or concept. And when we refer to the Word of God, it is a reference to uh, the Logos or to that which is written uh, or contained within the 66 books of the Bible. Now, you will know I prefer uh, the King James Version of the Bible. I just I don't even like the word version because there's only one version of the Word of God, but I believe that is the closest to the original manuscripts or the manuscripts from which it was translated than any of the other versions. We'll refer to 2 Timothy 3.16 in a little bit, but it says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Of course, it is profitable. We'll read the rest of it later for doctrine, proof, correction, instruction, righteousness. It is all inspired of God. The word inspiration means God breathed, holy men of God spake and wrote as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. There are a lot of ancient manuscripts and scrolls uh, containing writings about God, historical writings about uh, the children of Israel, Abraham, and so on. But the only writings that we accept as inerrant, infallible, and eternal is the 66 books of the Bible. When the word is spoken, it takes on a different form. When it's written, it's logos, but when the word is spoken, it takes on a completely different form. Uh, either whether we speak the word from the Bible or whether it is a prophetic word that comes forth from the Spirit of God, and that is called a rhema word, a spoken word. 
that comes forth from God, from God's spirit, from God's mind to man. The rainbow word for today is, it's not on the screen for some reason, the voice of reason. Boy, you're good, sis. My gosh, give that girl a raise. We didn't even plan that. We didn't even rehearse that. The rhema word for today is the voice of reason. Everybody say it with me. The voice of reason. I met a man at the gym the other day. The man was a retired gentleman. He had been a nurse for 40 years. And we had a conversation about things and state of affairs, primarily within the medical profession. And I didn't know if he knew it, so I brought it up to him because I had read this uh, some years ago that when they finally figured out why so many people were dying in a hospital, they discovered that the reason is because doctors and nurses would go from patient to patient and they didn't wash their hands. And so they were taking, of course, all of the infection, the staph, whatever, bacteria, virus, they were passing it from patient to patient. So at that time, when they said it's, it's time to go to the hospital, you, go, you would run. And so they finally discovered that that was what was causing people to die in the hospital. And yet, once they notified the medical profession across the board, it was another 20 years before they even began to practice the washing of hands before they would leave one patient and go to another patient. It gives rise to the question of all of us present today is what would it take for you to change a practice or a behavior that is habitually common to your life, but if it was determined to be beneficial, you would change it? What would it take to change our mind about something if it would become beneficial to ourselves and to others? Let that question hang in the atmosphere and in the room for a little while because I guarantee you there are some things in our lives that we're just bound to determine we're not going to change. Some things I would like to change. I would like to, I would like to not enjoy sweets anymore. I would love, God, you heard me right here. So far, he hasn't done it, but there's still time. So Jesus dealt with multitudes of people who wanted all of the benefits of discipleship, but none of the commitment. Wanted all of the blessing, but none of the sacrifice. Wanted the power, but not the consecration. And so this led Jesus to ask a rather imposing question, and I think it's viable for us here today in Luke 6 and 46. Why call Ye me, Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say. Now, we have an answer for that question because I need to be healed, because I need a blessing, because I, I need this and I need that from you. So the question was rhetorical. Nevertheless, Jesus asked it to mankind, and it could be imposed or posed to every one of us. In the gospel, according to Matthew, Jesus would very clearly state in very candid terms, the eternal consequences for this common error or this common practice of calling him Lord, but not obeying his word and not doing what he says. 
Thus it's written in 721, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord. He said, y'all need to get this because I've asked you a question. And until you understand the full ramifications and realm of what your answer may be, you need to understand not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, that changes things, doesn't it? But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. He went on to say, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works. And then, he said, I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The will of God as expressed in verse number 6, of, of, is communicated through both Logos. I don't know why I put that in there, but it's in there, so I know it's confusing. I don't know what verse 6 I was referring to. But anyway, it's communicated through both the Logos and also the Rhema. It's probably referring to verse 46, but it's an error in my notes. You see, this morning I told the Lord I didn't go back through and vet my notes, so anything is possible. This is just the beginning of what is possible. It's both a logos and a rhema. Now, when, when, when you read the logos and it comes forth as a rhema word, you better pay attention. Because that's the time that God is trying to speak to us. Now, we hear it all the time, preachers, you preach, and somebody will come up and say, God just spoke that to me. I just read that this week. Well, then that, that's important you pay attention unto that. But it's very important that what you read in the scriptures is exactly the same thing that you hear preached from the pulpit. You're only going to hear about one God from this pulpit. You're only going to hear about repentance. What a baptism in the name of Jesus. Not for an outward sign of an inward work, but for the remission of sins. You're only going to hear about the necessity of receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. If you read it in the word, it must agree with what's being preached from the pulpit. <clears throat> This also means that the counsel, this is really where it gets kind of dicey. It means that the counsel or advice that you receive from people or that you receive from other sources. See, we've got a lot of other sources going on now because of the Internet. They must also agree and be com compatible with the Logos and with the Rhema. If it's not, stay away from it. Stay away from it. So David committed adultery with Bathsheba. We're very familiar with the story. Uh, she was the wife of Uriah. And when she notified David that she was with child, uh, David uh, concocted a plan. That didn't work out. And so he had Joab put Uriah in the front line and have it where he would most certainly die. And he did. Uh, so in case you haven't noticed, one sin begets another sin. You can't just... You can't just get away with one sin. Sin reproduces itself. and It's a seed that reproduces a great amount of fruit in all of our lives. So if we don't repent of it, if we don't put it under the blood, if we don't, if we don't put it away from us, if we don't change our behavior and our actions, then there will be consequences uh, in uh, eternity. So I want to take this opportunity to say that the Lord has brought it to my attention in my own life, and I, I want to share it with you. Maybe this was just for me, but 
Repentance is generalized. You say, well, what do you mean, Bishop? I mean that we go, oh, God, if I've done anything, if I've said anything, if I've thought anything that is unacceptable to you or a violation of your holiness, please, God, forgive me. We generalize our repentance, but then nothing changes, does it? Nothing changes in our, in our behavior or in our spirit or in our attitude. There's certainly nothing, nothing wrong with covering all the bases. But I think that if we don't acknowledge and confess things like pride, vanity, hubris, lethargy, prayerlessness, carnality, hatred, jealousy, I mean, it could go on and on. If we don't confess these things, we just put them under the umbrella. It's raining, so I'll just put this under the umbrella, let it cover everything. We will never change our behavior. And the chances are that we'll only continue to just get worse and worse and worse. So Dr. Phil McGraw coined the phrase, you cannot change what you do not acknowledge. I'm going to ask you, do not come to this altar in a few minutes and generalize your repentance. You need to confess if necessary, don't make stuff up. You need to confess what you know is displeasing God. Because that's really the only way you're going to get true repentance and a change of heart. So it's possible that this is how David fell into the aberrant behavior that he fell into. He was generalizing his repentance. So when lust came up, when he began to lust after Bathsheba, he didn't catch that. Oh, God, forgive me. Oh, boy, isn't she beautiful? Wait a minute. You just asked God to forgive you. See, generalizing repentance will is a dangerous thing. And I believe it's something that many of us, if not all of us, do. So who's to say that after David committed adultery and after he conspired to commit murder, that he did not continue praying the general prayer of repentance. Who's to say that after he is a murderer now and an adulterer, he's still saying, oh God, if I've done anything that might have offended you or broken one of your laws, please forgive me. Of course, we'll never know for sure, but one thing is certain, the logos that condemned the sins of adultery, listen to me now, the logos, the written word that condemned the sins of adultery and murder remained safely on the scroll in the temple. Far away from David's mind, far away from his heart, the written word is somewhere between the pages of our Bible, that written word that is meant to bring us to a point of conviction and godly sorrow. What David needed right then was a rhema word. A rhema word. You know, I pray all the time that God will bring us a word today. I'm sorry, gentlemen, I don't mean to offend you, but I need more than a sermon. I need more than, than just a, 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 a Bible. I need a word from God. I need God to pierce through this temporal sphere of time and, and our existence and bring something to our heart and our mind that will elevate our faith or bring us to conviction or cause a change within the venues of our heart and our mind. We need a rhema word from the Lord. We, not, we may not want it, but we need it. Don't wait till I'm standing trembling at the white throne judgment to give me that rhema word. 
give it to me here and give it to me now. Don't do me that way. Don't do me that way. I want to hear the truth. And Sister Bruce will, will confirm this. Whenever we go to a camp meeting, uh, Bible conference, general conference, prayer conference, uh, any conference, we go, God, we want to hear something from the Word. Uh, you know, I can, I can look up on YouTube and get a thousand great sermons. I want to go hear a rhema word from the Lord. So Nathan walked into the throne room, and he proceeds to tell David a story about this poor man who had a little ewe lamb that was a pet. Children loved it, ate at its table. And uh, nice, cute story. But then he tells the king about a rich man, very wealthy, had friends come over and didn't want to touch his own flock. So he had somebody go over and yank this little ewe lamb out of their house, came and killed it and dressed it and, and served it to his guest. This story absolutely enraged King David to the point that he was infuriated by what he heard. And he says to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. You better hope not. And he says, furthermore, before he dies, he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. You see, the Logos of God that put the stain upon the ancient scroll that notified the children of Israel that adultery is wrong and murder is wrong, it clearly distinguished what David had done as sins and that those sins were punishable by death, but they were contained in a scroll somewhere beyond the palace. But while the Logos or the written word of God candidly, clearly defined that sinful behavior, it didn't prevent David from doing it, did it? And the king's knowledge of these laws and of these things did not bring him to repentance. So what David needed was a rhema word. A rhema word. One of, one of the most delightful and wonderful times in prayer is when I hear the voice of God. Oh, it supersedes everything to hear the voice of God. What a wonderful, wonderful experience it always is. And so David needed something that would bring him to acknowledge his sins and to experience the full and the excruciating weight of his actions, and that would require a rhema or spoken word from the prophet. Now, you can relax. God has not revealed any secret sin to me. We're not here to expose anything or anybody because you shouldn't need that if you really have a desire to serve God. So while David is in a rage and his face is red, he is just on fire with anger. As his indignation rises at the story about this little ewe lamb, David points his finger. Now, it doesn't say he did, but I've always envisioned this. He pointed his finger in David's face and said, Thou art the man. And just as well have stabbed him in the heart with a dagger because that is the way David felt in that moment. 
I know that we've all heard this story countless times before, but what I want to know is this. Do you have someone in your life that can and is willing to speak clearly and candidly to you regardless of how you accept it? Is there anybody in your life that will look you in the eye and say your spirit is wrong, your attitude is wrong. Is there anybody? Because if you don't have somebody that will do that, you need to find somebody real quick. But it has to be somebody that knows you, that is intimate with you, that, that is very well acquainted with you. It can't be a stranger because we don't receive a rhema word from strangers. Who does he think he is? He doesn't know me. Once again, do you have somebody that is willing and able to do that? Is there anybody in your circle of influence who will tell you the one thing you don't want to hear? Then I suppose the question is, if there is someone, would you be willing to receive it. Proverbs 11:14 says where no counsel is the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors there is safety. As a pastor for 33 years I can't tell you how many times people sought my advice and they never followed it. Just because we're a pastor don't mean that we're the, the sharpest knife in the drawer. But there's one thing we have their interest at heart. There's safety in a multitude of counselors. It's backed up by Proverbs 15.22. Without counsel, purposes are disappointed. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. If our concern really is to be successful and industrious in the work of God in the Great Commission, then we ought to be interested in what people can say that will help us fulfill that commission. So the benefit of counselors, advisors, or mentors is based on the assumption that we have a teachable spirit. The only way you can have a teachable spirit, I'm going to lay this on you right now, is to admit you don't know everything. I'm going to tell our, our friends from Maine, one of the things we hate in Florida is when northerners, and I'm a northerner, I'm a transplant, I'm a northerner, I had to learn this the hard way. We hate it when northerners come down and say, this is the way we do it up north. Don't worry about your suitcase, we'll carry it to the airport for you. Now, come on, admit most of us do not like it when people give us advice. We'll seek out counsel from where? Let, let's first talk about lawyers. We'll go to a lawyer and seek his advice. Nah, I don't want to do that. We'll go to a doctor, and he'll tell you what you need to do, what you can do to be in pristine health. Can't you? Don't you have a pill for that? We don't want to do it. Diet and exercise, 
it's the same thing as profanity in our language. I am cursing when I say those words. Isn't it true? And we seek out professionals of all kind, and, and then we don't do what they tell us to do, and then we are the worst because of it. Why do we seek out professionals? You know, a lawyer said never, never uh, adjudicate your own case. A lawyer hires a lawyer. Why? Because a lawyer has blind spots. He can't see everything that someone else can see. A doctor does the same thing. You know, Sister Bruce and I are guilty of self-medicating. We've, we've solved a lot of problems that doctors hadn't have a clue about by educating ourselves. But generally, a, 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 a medical professional seeks out another medical professional because they will see things from a distance and more clearly. 2 Samuel 13, verse 1, And it came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend. His name was Jonadab. Jonadab happened to be his uncle, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very subtle man, a smart dude. Look up the word subtle. He was smart. He was uh, very educated. So I know you've, if you haven't heard the classic message by Jerry Jones, go on YouTube and look. Amnon has a friend, has a friend, and look at Brother Jones' sermon. It's very, very powerful. But Amnon lusted after Tamar, and over time, his lust got worse. His inordinate affection for her dissolved or devolved, either one of them want to put it, into an obsession. And, and he was so vexed with his aberrant desire and lust for her that the Bible says he, it even made him sick. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? Inserted into this twisted and perverted tale uh, are the words, but Amnon had a friend. Amnon had a friend. Jonadab was well aware that Amnon did not love Tamar romantically with a romantic love. Jonadab was smart enough to know that Amnon lusted after this girl illicitly, inordinately. He knew that, and he could have given him counsel because he was Amnon's friend. He could have helped him deal with this and overcome this uncontrollable appetite, but he didn't. He could have averted a very bad situation, but he didn't. Instead, he concocts a plan, and he tells Amnon about how he can satisfy his lust for Tamar. So he instructs Amnon. Amnon was already feeling ill from, from this. He was sickened by this. He was so vexed by it that uh, he instructed Amnon, Jonadab did, to feign himself sick. And so that his father, King David, would come and visit him. And once David comes and visits you, and you're laying in bed, and, you're, and your father's at your bedside, then you need to entreat him and say, look, if, if you would send Tamar, 
to my bedside and, and fix me something to eat. And I know it says something different than there, but, but fix me some cakes to eat. And I, I'm sure it would probably make me feel a little bit better. Now, I really question David at this point. I, I really do. I've always questioned him. Come on, man. You've got to be smarter than that. But yet he was oblivious to Amnon's lust for Tamar. And so uh, the plan was set. So I want to ask you the question. Now, we're friends. We have friends, right? And we are friends. You're, you're somebody's friend. You're somebody, somebody trusts you, right? So what kind of a friend would tell that person, go ahead, I've got this worked out where you can rape this young girl and destroy her innocence. And what kind of a person does that? First of all, the kind of person that does that is just as deviant, just as evil as their friend is. Now, you got to be careful with this. I know this is a different sermon, but it's what God told me to preach, and I must be obedient. you got to be careful with this because there's a point to all of this that we're talking about. And the point is that it's human nature for all of us to gravitate to people who think just like we do. In most cases, there is no inherent harm in that. But when everybody in your circle of friends is just like you, you're in danger. There are no roadblocks. There are no warning signs. There are no voices of reason anywhere in your life. And you're on your way to problems. I don't know about you, but I want to get better, not worse. I want to be a better man, a better friend, a better husband, a better father. I don't want to get worse at this. If you keep patting me on the back and telling me I'm, I'm doing real good when you know I'm not, you're doing me a disservice. And you're, you're helping me to fail even further than I've already failed. In like manner, we form alliances whenever there's, there is a conflict of any kind. We form alliances. Why? We form alliances with people, again, that think just like we do. So the question is, do we have friends or do we have subjects? How many times have we felt that our actions, our choices, or our attitude was justified because nobody challenged us? Because nobody dare speak up. Nobody dare challenge us because they know we're, we're going to have fangs come out of our mouth and out of our fingernails. Or maybe it's simply because they never saw it anyway because they're just like you. So a true friend will not hesitate, a true friend, to look you straight in the eye and tell you you're wrong about this. I learned something about right and wrong a number of years ago when I discovered I, it used to be when you're in an automobile accident, let's say two cars involved, one car was in the wrong, one car was in the right. Well, they don't do that anymore. 
when, when, they, when they look at the whole site and everything that happened, they might say, well, this person's 60% at fault, but you're 40% at fault. I think we've got to get to the point where we realize there is no, we can't just be all right or all wrong. Sometimes in a dispute or a trouble or a situation, we may be culpable to some percentage if we're honest with ourselves. So a true friend will not hesitate to tell us that our behavior is unacceptable or that we need an, ad, an attitude adjustment. Pastor Phil, don't ever teach on attitudes. I did that one time, and, man, I'm telling you, we had devils come out of everywhere. I'm telling you. <laughs> it happens. So Jonadab provided Amnon with a rhema word from the Lord. Um, it's very conceivable, very possible, in hindsight, of course, that it may have saved Tamar from the worst and most degrading experience of her entire life. It might have saved her, and it might have saved Amnon from such a thing if they only heard at a critical time in their life a voice of reason. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. I told you we'd come to this in a moment and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. I want you to look at these things. Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction. Are you kidding me? I'm going to be blessed. I'm not going to be reproved and instructed and corrected, then you're here for the wrong reason. Because all scripture is profitable for these things. So there are times when, to be all honest with you, I don't need a pat on the back. There are times when I need somebody size 12 in the seat of my pants. You hear what I'm telling you? There are times when what I need is admonishment, not encouragement. So don't preach me to the mountaintop when I'm on my way to hell. Because if we're not careful, preachers, we will become enablers. And that's the last thing that people need from us is for us to enable them in sin. Hebrews 12, 6 and 8, or through 8, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, I want you to see this, I want you to read that big old two-letter word right in the front, if you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons for what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, anybody dare stand up and admit he never chastised me? Well, it says, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. I like to tell you that I've needed hardly any chastening in my 47 years as a Christian. But I've got scars to prove that God loves me because he's chasing me to save me from myself. 
He doesn't do it because he doesn't love you. He does it because he does love you. Well, there is a chance that we may not survive, but if he doesn't do it, it's perfectly clear that we won't. Deuteronomy 8, 5, and 6, Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee, therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. We need to stop just fearing the judgment of God in the future and fear the judgment of God in the present. Have you ever wondered why a God that loves his people with such a, uh, an adamant and, and fervent love and affection would uh, chastise, and we read the word even scourge, one of his children? He loves us so much. You know, the Bible says, spare the rod and spoil the child. Oh, I love my kids too much to, to spank them once in a while. Well, no, you don't love them enough to spank them once in a while. My dad never laid a hand on me. That's, that's probably why I turned out like I did. <laughs> no, I'm serious. My dad just had to look at me, and I melted right on the floor. He didn't have to touch me. He just had that look. Mom was different. I'd test her a little bit, but Dad, no way. No way. So what we, what we need is a rhema word from God, and that will help us avoid chastisement and scourging. If we will receive God's word, the logos and rhema of God, he will not need to chasten us as often, perhaps, as he would if we're not paying attention. I don't know if Paul wrote these words in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, before or after Demas departed from him or from his inner circle because of a love of this present world. But here are the words. I charge thee therefore before God, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Now, he's writing this, of course, to Timothy, who was a young pastor. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, and out of season. Early in my ministry, I didn't know what out of season meant, but I found out since then that sometimes we're just out of the season that we would like to be in. But you got to preach it anyway, guys. You preach the word anyway. But then what? Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. I heard it uh, uh, said uh, at the Tennessee camp meeting last summer that there's too much spongy preaching in the apostolic community. We don't preach against sin and ungodliness anymore. It's all, let's go to the mountain and get refreshed. That's okay, but sometimes we've got to get down on our face before God and confess some things. So let me break it down for you real quickly. Reprove is to convict or to show to be wrong. Rebuke, to admonish strongly with urgency and authority. Exhort to aid, help, comfort, or encourage. 
And Paul told Timothy to do this with all long-suffering, which means forbearance and doctrine, which means proper discord. Verse 3, for the time will come. Why do this? For the time. No, the time is here. But in Paul's writing, he said the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Don't tell me that cursing is bad. There's a guy at the gym, he's a, he's a strong Baptist. I can't stand to be around him. He, he studied the book of profanity. Everything comes out of his mouth is, is about profanity. And yet he will tell you first thing when you talk to him, oh, God, I'm a good Baptist. You're a lousy Baptist because I don't know any other Baptist that talk like that. But he needs somebody. Somebody that will take him aside that he trusts and say, hey, you need to stop this. That nobody would dare challenge him on his manner of speech. They will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Listen, you want to shack up and live together? There are a number of churches on the street that will pat you on the back and give you church membership. Not here. You want to smoke dope and drink booze? A lot of places will let you bring it into a church dinner. Not here. What am I saying? We need a rhema word, not from somebody's idea or religion, but from the word of God. The word of God. 1 Timothy 1.19, I have to hurry holding faith and a good conscience with some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. Shipwreck. And I know you've heard this before, but it, it, it just seemed to be so relevant to the message that I decided to use it. Maybe some of you haven't heard it. Uh, good for you. So the captain on the bridge of a battleship, uh, he was on an exercise at sea in uh, it was inclement weather. Let's just say the weather was bad. The sea was very rough. Visibility was very low. And just after dark, the lookout spotted a light on the starboard side of the ship. The captain said to the lookout, uh, asked him, is it steady or is it moving? The lookout said, well, it's, it's steady. It's not moving, which meant to the captain of the ship, it's on the same track we're on. It's coming toward us, right? Makes sense. It's on a collision course with us. And so... Uh, because of radio silence, they couldn't radio the person. They couldn't use that. So they had to use the, the lights, and the Morse code with lights and all that. So they communicated to this light. And here was the message. Change course 20 degrees. We are on a collision course. Now, I got to tell you, it's just like texting. You, you can be as ticked off as you've ever been. And when you text somebody, they don't get the anger. They don't get the elevation of your voice. They don't get the red face. They just get words that have no real significance. We need to stop all this texting to one another and start talking to one another again. That is co that's, of course, if you're not mad at me. Then if you're mad at me, send me a text. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they love me so much. Look at that, texting me. Drop dead must be a blessing from the Lord. I don't know. <laughs> so the signal came back a few minutes later and said, I advise you that you change your course. And the captain was mad now. And he told the lookout, signaled again, said, I am a captain. Change your course by 20 degrees. End of message. 
The reply came back, well, I'm a seaman second class. You better change your course by 20 degrees. So now there's this, there's this back and forth going on, and the captain is absolutely beside himself. He is furious. He could easily change his course, but there ain't no way I'm changing my course. Does that sound familiar? There ain't no way I'm changing the way I am. Bless God. And so he says, okay, send this. He says, flashes it to the light. I am a battleship. Change your course immediately. Probably dashes between immediately to emphasize the word. A few minutes later, the message came back from the light. says, well, I am a lighthouse. Your call. Perhaps if the man in the lighthouse would have divulged that, at the beginning of the conversation, everything would have went differently, but then we wouldn't have a story to tell. So this fictional illustration is so telling because we are sometimes so adamant, inflexible, and fixed in our position, just like the captain of the ship, when true to the story, we can't see everything. Our visibility is blocked by a number of factors and biases. But oh my, I'm dug in, man. I'm dug in. In the fog of situations and circumstances, a word from the Lord can give us just exactly what we need to see our way through. But when the lines are blurred, the lines between right and wrong, good and evil. What we need right then is a word from the Lord because he's never wrong. You see, that's a problem with advice. Well, you're just wrong. Even though that word may have come from the Lord or God is using that person to give advice. Um, what we need today especially today, is an unfiltered, unbiased, unprejudiced word from the Lord. We often consider the benediction contained in the seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor. He that hath an ear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. But there's something that's just as important than that, and that is that we're able to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. Or to me. Praise God. What is God speaking to you? What has he been speaking to you? Prior to today. 1 Samuel chapter 25. I'm, I'm uh, a little bit behind schedule. Which is nothing new for me. But uh, there was a man in Maon. Whose possessions were in Carmel. And the man was very great. And he had 3,000 sheep thousand goats and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife Abigail she was a woman of God of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance but the man was churlish and evil in his doings churlish means he was stubborn uh, he was of the house of Caleb not relevant but it's part of the word David sent ten of his young men they were out trying to stay out of 
uh, Saul's way. Saul was trying to track him down, and they needed food, so he sends 10 young men to Nabal to ask for uh, some food for replenishment uh, of their stores. Uh, one of the servants, uh, or uh, uh, let me back up. I'm not going to tell all the stuff. It was ugly. Nabal sent him away. He humiliated him first, then he sent him away. But then one of Nabal's servants goes to Abigail and tells her what happened, informs her. These men came. They, didn't, they, they were with us in the field. They didn't harm us, didn't hurt us. They, were, they were, uh, uh, protected us at night. But when they asked your husband Nabal for food and victuals, he refused. Then we come to 1 Samuel 25, 17. Now, therefore, know and consider what thou wilt do. For evil is determined against our master. The servants telling Abigail this. And against all his household, for he is such a son of Belial that a man cannot speak to him. I'm, I'm not so concerned about the Belial part because I don't think there's anybody in this room that would qualify as a son or daughter of Belial. But what is important is it says that he is a man that will not hear advice. A man cannot speak to him. You cannot talk to this man. You cannot reason with him. You cannot get through to him. He will not hear anything that anybody tells him that will improve his life. 1 Samuel 25, 36, Abigail comes to Nabal. And behold, he held a feast in his house like the feast of a king. Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was drunken. Wherefore, she told him nothing, less or more, until the morning light. But it came to pass in the morning when the wine was gone out of Nabal, and his wife had told him these things concerning how she, she took food to David and his men, that his heart died within him. The Bible says he became as stone. And it came to pass about ten days after that the Lord smote Nabal that he died. What happens when you get to a place in your life or your ministry or your walk with God or your marriage when nobody can tell you anything? Nobody can give you instruction. You, you got this down. You know you, you are the top of your pyramid of success. What happens when you get to the point where God sends men or women or people with a rhema word for you to help you and you will not listen to them? Zechariah 7, 11 through 13, but they refused to hearken. It's Israel and pull away the shoulder. You ever touch somebody and they pull away from you? Stop their ears that they should not hear. Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts has sent in his spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. You know, there's a place in the Bible where it refers to a, to a whore's forehead. You ever read that? Maybe you didn't know it was there. A whore's forehead. First time I read it, I go, my gosh, what is that? I looked it up. It means a whore's forehead is so hard, it, it, you can't get in there. It will, it will repel anything. You can't drive a nail in it. It's so hard. There's talking about having a heart like an adamant stone. Nothing can penetrate it. Nothing can get into it. A rhema word from a man or woman will not make any difference. And here's what happened, verse 13. Therefore it came to pass that as he cried, 
That's God crying out to his people. And they would not hear, so they cried, and I would not hear, saith the Lord of hosts. You want to keep the channels open between you and God. It takes more than prayer. You have to have an ear. You have to have a teachable spirit. You have to admit that you don't know everything. Musicians, please, would you join me on the platform? I honestly thought Sister Leslie was trying to wear me out so I wouldn't preach very long. What an awesome worship service time it was. I close with this. There's a substantial amount of time that passed between the time that Nebuchadnezzar died in the fourth chapter of Daniel and then you open to verse 1 of chapter 5. We're not privy privy to the details or the the, the, uh, history of this transition, but Nebuchadnezzar died. And the next thing we know, Belshazzar, his son, is the king and ruler of Babylon. However, relevant to that transition and what we're going to read in a moment in chapter 5 is the last verse of chapter 4, which is verse 37. Now, very quickly, uh, Nebuchadnezzar became lifted up, and God uh, gave him a beast heart, and he would roam in the wilderness with a beast heart, and it talks about the dew at night would land on him for seven years. After seven years passed, God uh, returned a human heart to him, and he was restored to the throne, but it taught Nebuchadnezzar something, and here's what it taught him. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven and all whose work are works are truth and his ways judgment and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Where was your son when you came to that conclusion? Why is it that you never taught him or perhaps he did in Belshazzar can't tell me anything. I am going to be the next king of Babylon. All right, very well. So the first we read of Belshazzar is in chapter 5 in verse 1. Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines, that they might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, and the king and the princes, his wives, and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here now. I'm I'm walking out on a limb, and I am suggesting that it's very conceivable, very possible, that God had dealt with Belshazzar just like he did Nebuchadnezzar. But Belshazzar would not listen to anybody. He would not receive instruction from anybody. Could have been some in his inner circle that said, you know, king, you're, you're great and you're exalted and you're mighty. There's a great kingdom before you, but you really ought to think these things through. We question your behavior. This could be disastrous. You need to listen 
to God like your dad listened to him. And because he didn't listen, he had a whore's forehead. His, his heart was like an adamant stone. At this celebration, he brought out the vessels from the temple just to spite God. Why that temple? They had conquered hundreds and hundreds of kingdoms. They massed a hoard of gold and silver and, and all kinds of things. Why the temple from Jerusalem? Because he was rejecting a rhema word from God. That's just what I suggest could have possibly taken place. And so it is. I think it's one thing to ignore the voice of God. But when he allowed his guests to drink from these gold and silver vessels, that was bad enough too. But then when they began to worship and praise false gods, drinking out of the vessels that were sacred to Judaism, God says, that, that's it, I am done. That was the end of grace for this man. Stand with me. Daniel 5 and 5, in the same hour, wasn't three weeks later wasn't three days later in the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote I, I can just hear God saying you wouldn't listen to me but you're going to listen to this don't wait until it gets to that point where God says you're not listening I'm sending you words but you're not listening, but you're going to listen to this. Then the king's countenance was changed. He was jolly. He was probably inebriated. He was having a time of his life. He was an orgy, if you please. But his countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him. He sobered up real fast. So that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against another. And then he calls his astrologers and his and his soothsayers and the Chaldeans and all his wise men, wise men, read it. Can you read that? No, we don't, we don't know the language. If they can't read it, they can't interpret it. And he's troubled, and, and uh, the night is, is late now, and his, his revelers are still partying and reveling, but he is shaking at his knees. And, and uh, it's remarkable to me if you read the story that somebody says, actually, it was the queen coming. She wasn't there. She didn't show up for the party. Remember wives, concubines, all that stuff? She walks in and says, listen, man, there's a, there's a man in your kingdom by the name of Daniel. How in the world is it that Belshazzar does not know about Daniel? Because he wasn't listening. He wasn't paying attention. So she says, listen, this man was used mightily by God during your father's reign. He can interpret dreams. He can, he can decipher writings. He, he is mightily used of God. So Daniel is summoned immediately. I guarantee you that he's going to walk in a room and he's, he's not going to tell Belshazzar what he wants to hear. But he comes anyway. Here's what he says, and, and thou, his son, Belsh, O Belshazzar, hast 
not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this. It reminds me of the parable of the pounds when, when the guy that buried the pound, God had him bound and cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing his teeth. And he says, look, I knew you were an austere man that you reap for you so not. Look, we know some things, but we need a word from God to restore that in our heart and our mind. But it's lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives, thy concubines, have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver, of gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know, and the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. Then was part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. This is the writing that was written many, many this is the interpretation, Daniel says of the thing. Many God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel thou art weighed into balances and art found wanting. Let me stop. Let me say that I'm sure that Belshazzar had heard similar things before, but he ignored them. My dad was driving one time in a car with, with two other couples, my mom and dad, and he was driving down a road. They were talking. He wasn't paying attention. He didn't see the sign that said curve ahead. And when he got to the curve, he started into the curve, and the car started to shift. So he just turned and went right out into the cornfield. He didn't see the warning sign that told him, slow down, there's a curve ahead. I believe some of us in this room, we are seeing and hearing warning signs from God, words from God, and we're not paying attention. Then tickle thou art weighing the balances and art found wanting, God forbid. For as thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians, then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet, put a chain of gold about his neck, made a proclamation concerning him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. Good for you, Belshazzar, but you're never going to live to see it because in that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. Ladies and gentlemen, please hear me. We need men like Daniel in our lives that will speak truth to us and will not hold anything back. We need men that will preach the word of God. They will not candy coat it. They will not need to make it more palatable for us. Just, just preach it to us. We'll deal with it. Preach the word of God to us. And we need friends, true friends, that will stop enabling our behavior and our pride and our arrogance and our self-righteousness, but will speak the truth to us. Because the Bible says in Proverbs 17 and 17, iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. What do we need today? In the midst of all the chaos and all the confusion, we need a voice of reason. You're not going to get it from Fox. I'm sorry. I like Fox, but you're not going to get it from them. You're not going to get it off the Internet. You're not, you're not going to get it from a message that somebody preached in 1992 because of the times in, in uh, Louisiana. You might get blessed, might, might be 
a lot of things, but you need a word from God today. Something that was born in the fires of a prayer room somewhere. Something that was born on an altar somewhere. A man or a woman that receives something from God that's going to help you out. That's going to set you straight. That's going to lead you in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I believe we got it today. God's been dealing with you. You need to bring that conviction unto this altar right now. You need to bring that, that which God is dealing with you, and bring it down to this altar. You need to cry out to God. You need to be honest with God. You need to confess those sins, and God is sure and quick to forgive you. Without hesitation, let's fill this altar. Why don't we... Be so bold as to say, God, speak to me about my life. Don't let me wander. Don't let me drift. Don't let me sway out of your will. Search me, oh God, and try my heart and see if there be any wickedness within me. Some of you know Respect the Holy Ghost by refusing to come to the altar, but praying yourself before God and humble yourself before Him. Teach us how to live beyond ourselves. Listen to the words. Let everything we say. Holy 
study I've never seen anywhere where Solomon had a friend. David had a friend, Hushai. I cannot find where Solomon had an intimate friend. Could it be that if someone would have just confronted him and talked to him, that the book of Lamentations would read completely different? that he wouldn't have become so cynical about life where all is vanity and pride if he only had somebody and I'm going to use a word now to mentor him in his faith I don't care how old you are in God we all need spiritual mentors we need mentors 
When we first came here, some of y'all that were here then, you'll remember we had Brother Glass and his wife come down from Pensacola and preach for us. They spent a week with us, and Brother and Sister Glass changed our lives. They were the first in our ministry to speak a rhema word into our lives, and it changed our lives and the course of our ministry just seven days with Brother and Sister Glass. We need God, folks. I don't have all the answers. I don't even have half of the answers. No, I have very few of the answers. But I have brothers and sisters in Christ that love me and not let me drive off the cliff. Miss the curves that God puts in front of me. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for being there for us through the years and praying for us. Be an encouragement to somebody. That may mean you need to speak the truth to them. And stop enabling them. You say, man.